Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, The Painter of Dead Women by Edna Worthley Underwood. First published in the Smart Set magazine, January 1910. And uh, I found this to be a hilarious story. <laughs> I don't think she meant it to be hilarious, but I, I found it to be very hilarious. Is that why you recommended we read it? Eric? Actually, no. I recommended that we read it because I found that it was really very cleverly written. Lots and lots of things going on under the surface that um, made me think this is a very smart writer. Um, also, um, she treads what I think is a, a, an ideological and political uh, line that's very delicate and not easy to do. Um, so the story comes out in 1910 in the smart set. Um, interesting audience. Now, who's, who's the audience for this magazine? Um, as you know, the smart set at this time, 1910 is already being edited by H.L. Mencken and he and, uh, George Jean Nathan, uh, continue editing it till the magazine's demise in 1930. In that period, it's really a very important outlet, uh, particularly for discovering important new writers like, you know, O. Henry, for instance. Um, I, I noticed that the smart set um, on the that PDF of the file that you provided uh, it says it's a yearly subscription of three dollars. Sorry, uh, yeah, three dollars. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's it's 12 issues. Uh, you can get single copies for 25 cents. Uh, I'm sorry. It's uh, I'm trying. No, to, right. Yeah. So I'm thinking 25 cents for single copies. Um, but it is 75 cents for. um getting the magazine by subscription because uh, I'm thinking, sorry, it's, it's actually $8. It's $8. It's a little hard to read the PDF. It's yeah, $8. It's okay. So it's 75 cents per copy by subscription and 25 cents by copy, single copy, which means that the editorial marketing position is we want people to go by subscription, right? Cause mm -hmm. Right. I mean, 25 cents. Nobody would buy it by subscription if they were really going to be able to get it for one third the cost mm -hmm. of single copies. But if you only print enough for your subscribers, then the 25 cents is just to get rid of the few extras that you happen to have in your print run. Mm. So I'm thinking these are people. This is a, this smart set is a term that has been applied in general to uh, the so-called 400, the four, the families that are the leaders of the economic and political life of New York City. It's also those people who are sophisticated and in the know and so on, which is perfect for this story, which begins with an Englishwoman uh, sitting on the terrace with while her Neapolitan husband is reading the paper and they're contemplating what ball to go to that night. Um, mm. So what does $8 mean? 
It turns out that in 1910, $1 equaled about $24.5 in 2014, um, actually $24.32, according to what I was able to find. In other words, the annual subscription for this monthly was $194.56 by 2014 dollars. $200 to get a monthly. This is an extraordinary amount of money. So the subscription model here is we're going to be getting really sophisticated, high-end luxury literature to go with the high-end luxury life that the smart set thinks that they want. And of course, it's Subtitle is a magazine of cleverness. Mm-hmm. So they're congratulating their readers on being so good and so smart, not just yeah. born to money. So you take a look at this story. The story begins with uh, a narrator who is a woman. We were lingering over one of our honeymoon breakfasts in Naples, my husband dividing his attention between Il Corriere di Napoli and his coffee as a newspaper, um, and I planning for my favorite pastime, swimming in that sea, which looks like a liquid sapphire. And they talk about the ball coming up. So here we have for the smart set an, an image of some English woman Right. I mean, we don't know if he's a count or not, but, you know, it sort of feels like that, doesn't it? That they just, you know, how shall we pass this wonderful day and so on? Now, what happens is he tells her that he's got to go away on business, but she should be dressed to look really good because he wants to meet her at the ball they're going to go to that night. Um, Pietro, the, uh, the servant, will take her there and uh, they'll meet there. Uh, his cousin, Luisa, will, uh, will uh, sorry, Lucia, Light, his cousin Lucia will meet her there. Uh, her name means Light. Light is very important in this, uh, as it is to all painters. Um, mm-hmm. um, and, and he wants her to look really good because um, he wants everyone to admire his new wife. Uh, so he's treating her kind of like an object. Mm-hmm. What happens is that she gets dressed and she talks about how she dressed a certain way and she looked she looked really good she thinks she looked really good she's treating herself as an object turns out in her self-description she's six feet tall mm-hmm. this is one tall woman for 1910 especially for an english woman um she's not you know norse or something and she gets into the carriage but winds up being taken mysteriously to a dark castle. When she asks Pietro, uh, wants to ask him, how come you took me here? He's already gone off with the horses and she's abandoned. So she knocks on the door and we have a standard house of horrors kind of opening. The door opens by itself. She's blinded by light. Um, She finally meets this guy who comes to her without making any sound whatsoever. And she says he's very tall one inch taller than she is. She's six foot one. So she's a real match for this guy. There's sexual double entendre everywhere. She says he was very erect in his posture as he came to me. And she's pretty erect too. That word gets used again and again. Mm -hmm. Turns out that he is completely cerebral, like H.G. Wells's Martians, 
right? He only thinks love. He only thinks eros. He doesn't touch people. He caresses them with his mind. And he has, like Dracula, another aristocrat who lives alone and traps people in his castle, mind control. And he's brought the servant to her, to him. He's brought her to him. And now he's got her in a sealed place where he explains that the whole point of life is to uh, get to ripeness. And after that, it's no good. But he's got this potion that will stop her at the moment of perfect ripeness. She's a great, great beauty. And he's going to give her this opportunity to become perfect forever. Of course, her brain may continue to live for a long time after her body is completely uh, stopped. But that's a small thing, because what does he care? Um, wouldn't she want this? Turns out that for the last 25 years, beautiful women, both native and visitors in Naples, have disappeared. No one's known where. But there's this painter of dead women, this guy. This painter has been putting paintings on the market. He's famous for his paintings. He's been having these immobilized models. And she realizes he's going to uh, get her. And we get more and more and more horror. So he finally brings her to the last room where she will queen it over everyone, as he says, because she has just the right color to get the light from the moonlight on the ocean. And she, he opens the window and we see the moonlight on the ocean. And there she is. Now he has to go and get the vial of this magical liquid that will do this petrifying to her body. While he's away, she, who likes to swim, dives out of the window into the ocean and swims away. Um, in the opening, the little part that I read to you, that first small paragraph, the ocean mm -hmm. the sea looks like liquid sapphire. The word sapphire occurs only one other time in the story. And it's when she decides to dive into the sea to escape. Sapphire, as a stone, symbolizes, among other things, protection. And this is her favorite place to be. Um, she swims away. She is found. She manages to get far enough to get some to some fisher women, not fishermen. So nudity mm -hmm. is not an issue. They she pays them a lot of money. Um, or promises to pay them a lot of money for them to put her in some clothing and bring her back to her husband. And the husband embraces her and says how what, she says, I had not thought that I would be able to come back, but I'm so glad that I am. And he says, um, and who would have thought that you would have solved a 25 year old mystery? Right. So you asked what I meant about a fine line. From the very beginning of this story, our narrator, this woman, is treated as an object. She even treats herself as an object. Her husband says, dress up, I want to show you off. The painter of the title wants her to look a certain way so that he can caress her with his mind. She's an object. He doesn't even care if her mind continues to function after she's immobilized. When she leaves... She leaves not thinking, aha, I've done something, right? She's just trying to preserve her own life. 
And when she is at the end, she thought, thinks, aha, I have come back to you. I am this object. But her husband says, and who would have thought that you would have solved this 25-year-old mystery? In other words, we have here a story by a woman writer about a woman who is either to be used as an object in a way that she's agreed to by her husband or a way she hasn't agreed to by the painter. But she is tall, strong, and athletic, admires her own self as an object, but she has autonomy. She decides to whom she will give herself as an object. In other words, this is a kind of feminist story. She solves the mystery. She gets away from the bad guy, despite his, his money, his mind control, and everything else. Our narrator likes the sapphire sea. The use of liquid imagery and swimming imagery throughout is very noticeable. She says it's her, swimming is her favorite activity. I started thinking about this, Jesse. Mm-hmm. What she likes is the feeling of being carried away. She likes to be an object. She mm-hmm. likes to be able to float. But she has trained herself to be able to move in the direction that she wants while she is held up by something around her. Mm-hmm. You see what I mean about a, a fine line? It's a feminist story. It's a feminist horror story. But the, the woman who succeeds doesn't say, oh, men are bad or, oh, I'm bad. She just is able to almost match a man six feet instead of six feet one and is able to make her own way even in a world that protects her when she is held up as an object. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 see, I see what you're reading. Um, you know, I, I was struck by those images as well. I mean, I think that this is a story designed – uh, like a Lovecraft story, it's designed to put you in a certain feeling. I don't think it's as skilled as Lovecraft at doing that, but I think she's tackling something that Lovecraft would never tackle, which is um, women and beauty. Um, <laughs> that's something Poe tackles. Poe has a story very similar to this, uh, told, or at least in, in theme, told uh, not from the woman's point of view, um, called The Oval Portrait which is one of my favorite stories, but um, this is a very different point of view on the same theme, which is, as you say, women as objects, but women's also, women also treating themselves as objects. And in, in that story, uh, the woman who is also a recent um, wife uh, on her honeymoon is painted by her painter husband unto death. He draws the image out of her so well that, in essence, he <laughs> – that's a pun there as well, I just noticed. In essence, he kills her by drawing her so well. Yeah, if I recall correctly, um, the line is, "What this is life itself, he says, mm-hmm. contemplating the last brushstroke on the oval portrait that he makes. And when he looks to the side, in fact, she's dead. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was reading this with my students yesterday, I said, <laughs> I said, why doesn't he just take a picture? It'll last longer, you know, like a photo. <laughs> um, 
Now, they don't have color photos very commonly in 1910, but I don't think that's the solution here either, because I think that's a very slight reading on on what's going on. Um, Edna Worthley Underwood uh, later became a novelist. She, she wrote a bunch of uh, a, a small set of short stories, uh, all with a, a supernatural or weird theme. This is actually the one that gave the title to her collection, um, The Painter of Dead Women. And uh, she was 37 at the time of this story's publication. But she lived uh, much longer and eventually uh, uh, saw herself um, committed to uh, an old folks home with dementia and lived another 10 years unable to take care of herself. Um she was a very – I was reading her, her Wikipedia entry, and she was a very learned person. She spoke many languages, translated many books, um, was uh, wrote a lot of novels about historical, um, historical fiction, in essence, and um, was obviously you know, well acquainted with Italy um, and many other things, as well as being, I think – as you say, the smart set, it's kind of like the New Yorker for, for the period of time uh, that we're looking at, right, 1910. It's it's sort of the snobby, the snobby magazine, um, but it has a sense of humor. And to me, it was like, I don't know if this is supposed to be funny, but I, I just I found it hilarious as reading through it. it uh, there's some things that I think are relics of its period. Um this is the height of racism period, right? Um, and in this story, we have a number of things that just are casual, tossed off, sort of racist um, language. And yet, I also see it as not not the intent as, as much as um, just a byproduct. But I think it ties in also with the idea of beauty, Right. So one of the things that she says, as you pointed out, she she dresses, dresses up and looks in the mirror. This is one of the uh, one of the things that I was saying, you know, not that great writing is when an author tells you what a character looks like by having the character look into the mirror and describe themselves. This is sort of to me, that's a sort of a cliche thing to do. But I want to read this section because I think it's it's it indicates a couple of things that are interesting, at least for the period. So it says, I, I was looking particularly lovely. I had dressed with the purpose of appearing as unlike Italian women as possible. Why is that important? Well, she's got blonde hair. Let me tell you. My hair was the color of the upland firs, and my cheeks glowed like the roses of an English garden. <laughs> so this is a lady who's looking in the mirror, Telling us what she looks like and complimenting herself. Uh, later on, when sorry, well, I was going to say this is true, um, but I wouldn't chalk this up to bad writing uh, because um, the painter himself of the title talks about how if she were to live past this point, with every passing day, she mm-hmm. would be putting on extra weight here or there. So my slim six feet of stature was arrayed in plain white satin princess gown. Um, she's giving us the image that the man who is going to paint her doesn't want 
to say he wants to frighten her with its alternative. So it seems to me that what what Underwood has done is let us know that our narrator has a darn good appreciation for what she's worth on the market. Yeah, exactly. when When you think of what the market is, she is, after all, an English woman. It's interesting. This is being written by a woman who was born, I guess, in Kansas, um, some Midwesterner, and, uh, and clearly not an English woman at all, um, <laughs> although traveled and learned, self-taught mostly. But I did notice that she got her bachelor's degree from the University of Michigan at 19. Um, but she's she knows her worth, and she is appri- appraising it. So that when the painter says, when you get older, you'll be this. And because you're, he says, and you're, you will queen it ahead over all of the other women I have in my collection. Right. right. I mean, he, he is letting us know how he thinks of her and what he believes her current appearance means. So having it laid out to begin with, how does she assess it and how does a man assess it? How did a particular, that's a different thing. And that, I think that contrast is important. Her husband, who is Italian and is one of the Leopardi, right? Presumably a noble family of leopards. And they are in contrast, they are in conflict with the dead painter who is Ponte Leone, right? Um, so he's the, the, the bridge of lions. He wants to make the bridge, and he uses that word to get her into immortality. We've got two cats fighting over her as the spoils. Mm-hmm. But one of those cats is willing to recognize that she has autonomy. The other is not. And so that opening description that she gives us in the mirror, uh, the fact that it comes from her alone rather than, oh, her maid says, madam, you look so nice tonight with me. Mm-hmm. I think it's actually appropriate. It may still be funny, but it's appropriate because we're getting to see a contrast a between self-worth and worth to others. It is appropriate. It's very hard to, especially in a very short story, to to do all of the things. I mean, one of the things that happens at the end is is she, her husband says, "Oh, you've solved the mystery, the you know, twenty five year mystery of the serial killer." And that's the end of the story. It's like it's not like they, you know, the police went and ro- rounded him up and put all the women in I don't know the local museum or what. There's no trial. There's, the, the story is over as soon as she gets back to her husband's arms. And to me, that that is exactly why it's so funny is because. It is sort of this truncated. Yep, um, I'm a powerful woman, uh, even though I'm a sex object, and I'm, I treat myself that way. Um, so it is a very it's it's a proto feminist story in a certain sense. But uh, there's another line later on that I think uh, most of the story is actually just him, star- the painter of dead women, staring at her and maybe saying a few things, um, and her staring at him and and being listening to him he almost he almost dominates the entire back half of the story with his philosophy she we almost never see any of her reactions until quite near the end Um, but there is a point here where he admires her he says uh this story says no mark of material beauty had escaped it it was the trained glance of a connoisseur which measures accurately. I might have been a picture or a piece of furniture. 
And And then this is the line that started to get me going, aha, I felt that he knew my racial standing. Okay. Yes. My rank as a human animal. Okay. <laughs> By the delicate roundness of my bones and the fine fiber of my flesh. I had been as a glass to his intelligent gaze. Somehow, then, I felt that the body of me belonged to him because of his masterly penetration, which substance could not resist. I was like, wow, this story's hilarious. Because can you imagine anybody of our period talking this way? They sound insane, right? And yet that is exactly the kind of language people were using back then and thinking back then. And it does tie into uh, his gallery of women, right? He's got some Asian ladies. He's got some other Italian ladies. He collects women from all over the place, right? Yeah. But, but I, here's I think, a perfect specimen of human female Englishness, right? Six foot tall, rosy cheeked. It's object yeah. collection. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I, I, I guess the reason I don't find it uh, quite as funny as is that um, I think that that Underwood is absolutely aware of this that. A woman yeah, needs needs to take her needs to understand this herself as an object in this world um, among the smart set, and I think that the English see themselves as tall and fair compared to the 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 Italians who are are short and dark, uh, right. swarthy, and there's a long literary tradition starting in the 18th century. Uh, with books like the Castle of Otranto, in which we actually get quite explicitly the the noble, thoughtful, fair English, uh, as opposed to the supernatural, myth-ridden, priest-ridden, short, dark Italians. Now, it happens that um, her husband is pretty tall for an Italian, but most of those other beauties that our painter fellow has been able to uh, petrify they're all much shorter than our woman. So she's right from their viewpoint in seeing herself a certain way. I'd also like to say this. This is a matter of tone here because clearly you and I are reading the same story, seeing the same things in it. If the story had ended, well, it has – here's the last two paragraphs. Ah, Luigi, I sobbed as he folded me in his arms. Little did I think when you spoke of the dance this morning that I should spend the night with the dead dancing women of Pantaleone. Okay. Now, if the story had ended there, then it would simply have been, oh gosh, I got back home. And now I am safely in, uh, I am back to being a protected object, right? He folded me in his arms and she Mm -hmm. seems happy about that. But there is one more line, one, a one sentence paragraph, nor, his Luigi replies, nor did I think that you would solve Naples mystery of crime. Mm-hmm. In other words, he is giving her the credit for being more than an object. Her return to him has not just made him feel self-satisfied the way the painter did. OK, I've got beauty. She's still mine. She, he has learned something further. 
And I think having that extra line doesn't make the story funnier, but it does make it more subtly feminist. I agree. And yet, there's always more to say. And today, we couldn't resist saying more. I, I mean, I, I, it's just, it's like, they're aliens, these people. They're aliens. Um, you mean both, I mean all three of them? Well, the, basically her. Um, uh, Edna Worthley Underwood. Um, but you can understand oh, you mean it. the I, author is an alien? Yeah. Because she's 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 she she's has this idea, yeah. Maybe feminism's a good idea, right? And you know, and that's that's a noble thought. But um, she, it's kind of like I was listening, started listening. To, well, I was listening. Maybe I finished listening to the um, one we did for uh, All Cats Are Gray. You know, Andre Norton, and uh, that one has a. A sort of a traditional happy ending as well, right? Uh-huh. Sort of heterosexual. Um, everything is right with the world. Um, it's sort of like, well, we can experiment with these ideas of you know women having power and being you know exploring ideas and all that stuff. But uh, we we have we have to remember this is a commercial product, and at the end the story has to <laughs> right? sort of summed up. But uh, it's just hilarious that the that the, the end is 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 that because if this was a modern story um that wouldn't be how it ends and she wouldn't just escape right escape is not uh, is not taking action she, uh, the only thing she did was she saved herself right no, she isn't no because she solved the mystery and now presumably yes. the police are going to go and stop this guy I guess, but that's not, uh, you know, like uh, the right before that, right before that, um, you know, uh, the oh, I sobbed is Luigi's, you know, blah blah blah. Um, it says, uh, yeah, the fisherman, right? They took me in, and for the doubled price of a good month's fishing, brought me that night to Naples. Why does she have to lord it over them? How She's much not, money? Is this? No, that's not. Well, that's not how I read it at all. These women well, knew that they had her. She was either going to have to go back naked, right? But right. Why, why so, bring money? Why did why bring filthy lucre into it? Lucre. Because in fact, this thing is about class as well as gender. Indeed, indeed. Right. That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, as far as you know, what she does, there's a lovely line here. Um, it's on page 122, starts at the bottom of the left. Um, Strangely enough, the decree of death that I had read in his face cooled the ardor of my fear. I became calm and collected. In an instant, I was mistress of myself. Right, finally. And ready to fight for my life. The blood stopped pounding in my brain. I could think with normal clearness. Now, this this sounds a lot like that Johnson quote, you know, that Boswell gives us, depend upon it, sir, when a man knows he is to be hanged in a fortnight, it concentrates his mind wonderfully. Right. 
Right. Right. But here's a woman and she's not saying. Right. So the, first of all, it's the same phenomenon. Right. Seeing death before her concentrates her mind. But the result of that is she is mistress of herself. And as mistress of herself, she does not need to have supernatural powers, superhuman strength, superhuman clarity of vision. She just needs to have the ability to think with normal clearness. I think that's really a terrific touch. What Underwood is saying to us is if a woman will just act like a person, she'll have all the power she needs just as much as a man. There's some um, another funny thing um, that the the vampire we didn't mention he's a vampire basically. Oh, right. um, um, uh, his description by her is just as hilarious, I think of her it's her description of herself. His head would have been beautiful had it not been had it not the features been so delicately chiseled that strength and nobility had been refined away. <laughs> And in their place had come effeminacy. Oh, snap. And a certain cold, <laughs> delicate cruelty. He was an old man, too, and his heavy hair was white. His brows, however, were black and youthful. From beneath looked out blue eyes. The eyes were the color of light uh, when it shines through thick ice. Uh, I think I just That's read. a perfect line. I love that line, Jesse. Her favorite activity is swimming. She yep. loves to be held up by water. Um, she loves to be held up. She's She is very beautiful and doesn't mind being, in fact, an object of people's admiration. His eyes are of hard ice. That's water you can't swim through. That's, That's right. water that is dead. That's such a clever um, simile that Underwood has her narrator use. Because it fits perfectly with what's going on here. Hey, just a couple of paragraphs down. This is the end of sort of the description of his physicality. And it's just, it made me laugh out loud. Uh, I realized that the man coming towards me did not live by means of physical acts of life. I'm like, he doesn't eat sandwiches, right? <laughs> <laughs> he, he had learned to live by his brain, semicolon. He was a cerebral. <laughs> No, what the heck is that? She she has a fun, a, a number of these really strange, like I'm like, is that grammatically even make any sense? Um, there's a, a few quotation marks missing here and there. No, but, I think it's actually, I think it's the same usage of an adjective for a noun that you sure. have, have when people say um, of of uh, a cloistered uh, Christian, for example, he was a religious. Right, but it's it's funny because it. Uh, I've never seen that before. I've read a lot of stuff. Um. <laughs> you know, I have, I've never seen that either, and I, I too read from time to time. But it made me start thinking when you're talking about the vampireness of this. Yeah, yeah. Pietro whips the horses, and the horses run off, and you know, we've got the, the mind control at a distance, and yeah. we've got this, you know lone aristocrat in a castle on the hill. You know, I mean, it's, it looks like Dracula. Oh yeah. Right? And, and the, and, and, and the eating stuff that you just mentioned looks like Dracula. So I started thinking because when I first came up with this, this idea of 
what is this mind control and the telepathy? I was thinking of the Martians in the War of the Worlds. Because mm. this, this story has the tremendous exploration right. of mm. what it means to separate the mind and the body. And the painter doesn't care. You know, forget, you know, once I've got your body, who cares about its relationship to your mind? Uh, but he lives entirely in the mind, including the contemplation of bodies. But they don't really get together. Well, Wells always is arguing that you need to have a, a, a collaboration between the mind and the body. Uh, that, that, that he never wants to favor one over the other. He doesn't want us to become bestial. He doesn't want us to become fully cerebral. The problem with the Martians is that they have evolved away their bodies. So the War of the Worlds is 1898, but I looked it up, and son of a gun, the War of the Worlds was published serially before it came out as a novel in 1898, published serially in 1897, which is the same year in which Stoker published Dracula. Mm. And so this, this notion of the mind and the mind control and abusing the body and not paying attention to the body and that this is monstrous and horrific and interferes with sexuality. Remember in Dracula, we've got all this thing about the brides and everything. And in the more of the worlds, our narrator at the end feels he's got success because he's been able to rejoin himself with his wife. Right. And to think that she and I had thought that we would be never see each other again. I forget the exact wording, but um, it, it's uh, to love and be loved. Anyway, uh, it's a little like I've got Annabelle Lee in my mind for other reasons. Um, and so here we've got the story. It's 13 years later, written by um, a woman who is clearly well-traveled, well-read and autodidact mostly. And we've got two best-selling novels from the period of seances, mesmerism, and all that, she's got to have this in the back of her mind. I, I can't imagine she couldn't. Even if it's not directly, everyone was thinking about that, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that makes me wonder, if everybody was thinking about it, um, I'm wondering if she was not using the word cerebral as an analogy to the, the use of the noun use of the word religious, mm. uh, and that it was, in fact, to be funny, just as you say, because this Pantaleone is making a religion out of um, his mind. I want to read her other stuff. He elevates himself, right? I I wouldn't want to just have physical love like my my scullion. Right. Yeah, I made a note of that. Um, He says, I do not want the bestial common pleasures which my coachmen have for... Uh, and then it says, uh, or my sculling can buy with a quarter. And I'm like, a quarter? <laughs> is that what they have in Italy, quarters? Maybe. Or is this an, an American lady writing for an American audience? Um, well, I don't know, but that's what a single copy that's, of, that's of That's what the story cost. is, right? Yeah. <laughs> I guess that's us, the bestial scullions, huh? Yeah.